<laughs> Thank you, sir. Well, good late morning. How are we doing? Good. Hey, on behalf of my wife and kids, the three that were able to come, we just want to thank you for just your kindness and your sweet disposition these past few days, many of you whom we've met and others that will probably get a chance to meet after the service. And uh, thank you for just your service to us. And I want to thank your leadership as well, Derek and other, the rest of the leaders, just for their kindness to us and how they've served us so well these past few days and weeks, really, as we've been in conversations, as you know, just seeking to discern the will of God, both for Eastridge and for us as a family. And so thank you, uh, brethren, uh, for just the way that you have loved on our family. And um, we are so grateful for the opportunity not only to be here, but also to be able to minister God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 is our passage for this morning or late morning. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And always remember, as we open up God's Word and we read it and we proclaim it and we apply it, this is God's authoritative, inerrant, inspired, infallible Word. Amen? So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Let's read this text together, or I'll read it for us. Jesus went out from there and came into His hometown, and His disciples followed Him. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he can do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there was a poem that I came across a few years ago titled The Seven Ages of a Married Cold. The Seven Ages of a Married Cold. Cold as in the sickness cold. And it revealed the reactions of a husband to his wife's cold during the first seven years of their marriage. And it went something like this. The first year he's very sensitive. The husband is to his wife when she gets a cold. And he might say something along the lines of, Sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. Some of you husbands, you know you still call your wife a baby girl, okay? I do. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all this strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing your meals in from Rosini's. Probably some Italian restaurant, right? I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. That's the first year. The second year of marriage. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've, I've called Doc Miller and asked him to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, please. Just for Papa? Hmm. Third year. Third year. Maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something to eat. Have you got any canned soup lying around? <laughs> He's becoming less sensitive, isn't he? Fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids, washed the dishes, 
and finish the floors, you'd better lie down. The fifth year, the fifth year, for crying out loud, why don't you take a couple of aspirin? The sixth year, I wish you would just gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. I hope none of you husbands do that, okay? The seventh year, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia or something? Wow. Now, how many, of us can, how many of you can identify with this, husbands? Yeah, thank you for your honesty, brother, a couple of you. <laughs> a couple of you are being honest this morning. Maybe not to the same extent, right? Maybe using those words that the man used. But all of us, to some extent or another, can identify with this with regards to our spouse, right? If we're really being honest. I think these reactions reveal how susceptible you and I are to a commonly known condition that we all suffer from called familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And really it's this, that the more that you know someone, the more familiar you become with that particular person, the more you're in danger of taking them for granted, of even being led to bitterness or resentful towards that person on the human level for one reason or another. We're all susceptible to this, brethren. Every single one of us on the human level, on the horizontal level. But this is also something that we're susceptible to on the vertical level with regard to our relationship with, with our Heavenly Father, with God. Where maybe at one time, you know, your discovery of God was treasured. There was this ongoing pursuit that was fervent in your life of God and of His greatness and all of that. It was relentless. It was fervent. It was sweet. But now you struggle to pursue Him. Now you struggle to... Uh, he's become familiar to you. His truth has become familiar to you. And your heart is cold and complacent and indifferent to Him. We can all identify with that. Amen? And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you feel a little bit of this. You are there. And you see a distancing in your life from your Heavenly Father. We've all experienced it. Well, this is why this passage right here that I just read to us is so important. Because it's here that we find one of the saddest passages in the whole Bible, really. It's here that we find Jesus' people, His own hometown of Nazareth, displaying their depravity. Displaying their utter sinfulness in terms of their response to the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically their rejection of Jesus by their, His own people. By those closest to Him. By those who from a human level and a human perspective, they should have known better, but instead they turned their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want us to see in this passage this morning is this, that close acquaintance with the facts about Jesus, close intellectual acquaintance with the truths about Jesus, don't equal intimate relationship. Don't lead necessarily to a, a sense of love in terms of our heart affections towards the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's so true oftentimes that the more familiar we can become with the truth, absent from a response of worship and loving submission, the more hardened we can become to that truth. Amen? That's been true in our lives at to some extent or another as I think back even about my own Christian journey over 30 years since the Lord saved me. Oftentimes that has happened to me. 
Conversely, on the other hand, when a person humbly responds to the truth concerning Jesus and we submit to Him, right? A person will experience God's blessing now and in the life to come. You draw closer to Him because now we're appropriating the truths that we are learning concerning Jesus and His Word to our hearts and lives. It, it impacts our affections, the things that we love or hate, and then it leads to actions that are obedient, actions out of a heart of love and gratitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But more often than not, we're in danger of the opposite, of not responding to the truth of God's Word. We're often in danger of falling prey to that Truth, that familiarity has bred contempt in our hearts. And so to help us, I want us to reflect on this particular passage as we focus our attention on four highlights as we walk through this passage, okay? The first highlight, if you're taking notes and there are, there's a note-taking a sheet of paper in your bulletin, the first highlight that I want us to focus upon is the great teaching. That's your first point, the great teaching. That's in verse 1 and verse 2. And what we see here is that these people, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, had been the recipients of, of great teaching. We know that this is Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, from back in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, and Mark chapter 1, verse 24. This is Jesus' hometown where he grew up. And look at the text in verse 1. It says that Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. Verse 2, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in their synagogue or in the synagogue. That was always the priority for Jesus. He would go right into the center of Jewish worship and Jewish uh, proclamation to minister to people. And even though the Gospel of Mark, Mark this, uh, no, um, uh, records 19 of the 37 miracles of Jesus, one thing that you cannot miss is that Jesus' priority and pattern was always to teach and preach the gospel concerning himself. So that's what he's doing here. And so imagine this. Picture it. Jesus comes into his hometown. Here comes the hometown boy whom they are very familiar with. Right? I had a seminary buddy back a few years ago who would go to the, back home to the Midwest uh, with his family just to visit where he grew up and all of that. And he would come back and tell me how it was a sweet time, obviously, of a vacation going back to the Midwest. And people were very affirming and so encouraging and all of that. But that there was this one little old man who always tried to keep him humble. You know what I'm saying? And who would say, tell him as soon as he walked onto the property with his family, he would say, hey, preacher boy, preacher boy, don't forget where you came from, preacher boy, he would tell him. So this guy's always trying to keep me humble by doing that, and I struggle with it, right? But that's what he would do. Well, think about Jesus returning now to Nazareth where he grew up, where people knew about this man named Jesus who was the preacher boy in town. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has returned back to Nazareth. Approximately a year before this, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had visited Nazareth, and at the time, the response to his teaching and to um, what he was, his ministry there was so hostile that they tried to even throw him over the cliff. And so, shockingly, here is Jesus once again, brethren, coming amongst his people with his disciples, giving his own people another opportunity to be exposed to him and to his teaching. What a heart Jesus had for people, right? As we watch him in the Gospels as we behold our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here he is again. He returns because he wants to minister to these people. He loved them. They were dear to his heart. Boy, I think we can learn something from the heart of Jesus about the way he loved people from even this example, right? Oftentimes, what is our tendency? We are so quick to give up on people, especially even the brethren, but also non-believers, people whom we are witnessing to. You know, if they reject the message of the gospel the first time, then that's the last time that we're going to interact with them. But what we learn from the heart of Jesus and his example is that he was the opposite. He was constantly knocking on the door, wasn't he? Here he is amongst his people again, seeking to minister to, to them. And he goes right into hostile territory from that mini mission that he did a year before that in Luke chapter 4 to Nazareth. He is not going to be deterred from ministering to Nazareth. And so you can also imagine it wasn't easy to minister to people who knew him well. This is where he grew up. This is where he was raised. This is, these are people that, that knew him and his family, as we're going to see in a few minutes. In addition, they now have heard about Jesus' teaching. The word is out on the street about this one who is proclaiming great things and who is doing great, powerful miracles. If you remember, even his own family in Mark chapter 4 had heard of his ministry, had come to rescue him because they believed that he had gone mad. So they come to try to rescue Jesus. So people know about Christ. People are familiar with what he's teaching and his miracles, including his own hometown people. And so note this. There was no shortage of exposure on the part of these people to Jesus' life and to his great teaching. They couldn't claim ignorance. They couldn't claim that they had never heard the living word with a capital L, right? They had heard about him, the small, obscure town of Nazareth, of whom um, Nathaniel had said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? had been the witness of the light of the world. Imagine that, brethren. They had had full exposure to Jesus and to His teaching. You say, how does this apply to us, Pastor Kempis? Because obviously Jesus isn't here physically, visibly amongst us, and He's not. But He's very much alive and well, isn't He? We are people who have been exposed to great teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. How? By means of the truth of the Word of God, right? Here's the, the Word of God, the revelation of our triune God. We have received great teaching. You as a church have received great teaching from your former pastor and other pastors who preach from this pulpit and all the little pulpits around the church. You have been the recipients of great teaching concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. On top of that, right, you read God's Word. On top of that, you are exposed to great books that point you to the person and the work of Jesus. And then you have access on these things called smartphones, which really haven't made us very smart, have they? They've actually done the opposite. We can access world-class preachers, the most faithful men all over the world. We can access them, right, with a press of a button. We have been exposed to great teaching, brethren, more than any other generation. We have access to the proclamation of the Word of God through some of the most faithful preachers and pastors all over the world. The question is, what do we do with what we hear? How do we respond to it? Are we, like James 1 says, doers of the Word or hearers who are self-deceived? Which one are you today? Because we're going to find out what kinds of people the people of Nazareth were with response to Jesus Christ. How do they respond? Would this be different than a year ago when they were full of hostility and even tried to take Jesus' life? Well, this leads us to the second highlight of our passage. 
They were exposed to great teaching, but then, note, they commit the great travesty. That's point number two on your outline, the great travesty. Look at verse 2. Our text says that when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and here it is, and the many listeners were what? Astonished. Why? I mean, this seems like a good response. Favorable response. They're astonished. That word was used back in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, where Jesus, is, Jesus, after teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, it says that the people were amazed or that they were astonished because Jesus taught not as their scribes and Pharisees. He taught as one who had authority. And so, at first glance, on the superficial level, this seems like a wonderful response from these people. But you, keep, you need to keep reading the text, right? Because there are five questions that they ask here, three aimed at his ministry, and two aimed at him personally, and they're about his family, which reveal the distorted view of Jesus, the diminished view of Christ that these people had. They ask a question about the source of his teaching. If you notice in verse 2, they ask about the source of his teaching. Where did Jesus or this man get these things? I mean, Jesus is speaking marvelously, but it doesn't make sense to them because this is an untrained rabbi with no formal education. And yet he speaks of marvelous things. A rabbi with no credentials or pedigree to boast in. He speaks marvelous things. They also wonder about not only the source of his teaching, but the content of his teaching. Look at verse 2. And what is this wisdom given to him? What is this wisdom given to him? Contrary to the rabbis who tended to mimic the last guy, mimic the last rabbi, regurgitate everything that other rabbis were teaching, Jesus is speaking great substance with great skill, isn't he? So they wonder, where did he get that wisdom? Third, they also wonder about his power. Not only the source and the content, but also the the power of Jesus. Verse 2, at the end of verse 2, and such miracles as these performed by his hands. How is this guy able to do such things? I mean, they the word on the the word is out on the street. They've heard of his casting of demons, great powerful miracles, calming of storms, healing of sickness, all of that. This man is unrivaled in power and unrivaled in authority, right? As we read through the contents of the Gospels, these people have heard of these things and they're wondering, where did he get this kind of power to perform such mighty miracles? You see, all of the proof is there. All of the proof is there for his hometown to acknowledge their Messiah. You see? But the opposite happens. And here's where the contempt really kicks in in verse 3. Verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They ask. I mean, in other words, we know this guy. He's common to us. He's nothing special. We know his family. Why, this is the local carpenter that we're familiar with who maybe we even hired him to do some of our work as he grew in Nazareth. They're familiar with him. He's nothing special. What indifference. What passivity with regards to the person and the work of Jesus. And as bad as it's been, it gets even worse, brethren. Even more greater contempt is shown toward Jesus here. They ask, is not this the carpenter, and listen to this, the son of Mary, the son of Mary, 
Now, don't miss this. This is the ultimate insult here because the custom of the day was for people or a son to be referred to by the father's last name, whether the father was alive or wasn't alive. But how do they refer to him? As the son of Mary. They are insulting Jesus, and not only Jesus, but also Mary bringing doubts upon Jesus' legitimacy. And we know if you go back and read in John chapter 8, verse 41 later on, that the hostile religious leaders had even implied that Jesus was, was born of fornication. That Jesus was the byproduct of a sinful, immoral relationship between Joseph and Mary. And that gossip concerning Jesus' illegitimacy has spread like wildfire to undermine Jesus' ministry. And no, that was a talk of the town there in Nazareth. And so listen... All of these questions were not asked because they were trying to gain unknown information about Jesus, because they really wanted to know about Christ so that they might believe in Him. They were questions full of skepticism, full of doubt. All of their exposure, brethren, to the Lord Jesus Christ didn't endear their hearts to Jesus, but hardened them even more. It made them more callous. They couldn't explain Him, so what did they do? They rejected Him, didn't they? Not only did they view him as common and ordinary, but he was beneath them. He was beneath them. Rather than Jesus being a, a blessing to them, he was, they stumbled over Jesus because they were familiar with him. They were indifferent to him. You know, we can certainly understand how this happens on the human level, can't we? I was reading the testimony of a now Christian woman, a sister in the Lord, who was formerly a liberal professor at a university, she was an English professor, a feminist of feminists, a practicing lesbian, an atheist as bad as they come. And then one day she had a collision with Jesus and God forgave her, transformed her heart, and saved her. Now she's a child of God, a godly woman. She's a wife of a pastor. She's an author. She schools her children. She's a discipler of women. All of these wonderful things. She's an evangelist in her own right by means of the proclamation of the Word as she shares with other women in the context of women's ministries and all of that all over the country. She's also a person who uh, evangelizes even by means of her works, her written works. Amazing testimony. And she talks about how people can't believe it. Their response is, how could it be that she is that different? That things have changed so much. They wonder and they stumble over her testimony. She's a stumbling block for many people because they knew her before she came to know Christ. She had a reputation. Well, so did Jesus. Now in his case, it wasn't a sinful reputation, right? Because he was and is the perfect blameless one. We know that. But in the eyes of the public, at least the Nazarenes, he was a, a Nazarene, a blue-collar worker, an untrained, unsophisticated uh, rabbi with no professional credentials. And they couldn't get past that reality, that they were familiar with this one. He was common to them. He was ordinary to them. And look at verse 3. They took offense at him. They took offense at him. That is, he became a, a stumbling block to them. It's the same word from which we get scandal or to scandalize. To them, Jesus, in essence, was a, a public scandal. In the same way that that, that that woman who came to know Christ was a scandal to people. But that's the marvel of the grace of God, isn't it? Even for us who are sinners saved by grace, 
People cannot, who, are, who knew us prior to knowing Jesus Christ, they cannot even begin to embrace or to put their arms around the differences and the changes that God has made in our lives. That's what makes the gospel of grace so beautiful and marvelous. Amen? Well, what was their problem? What was their problem? Jesus tells them, thirdly, if you're taking notes, a great truth. The great truth. They had seen, they had been the recipients of great teaching, right? They respond in the great travesty by basically a, with a distorted view of Jesus. And then thirdly, I want you to see the great truth in verse 4. Our Lord diagnoses their problem in what He says in verse 4. He says to them, A prophet, speaking of Himself, is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. It was commonly believed that Jesus was a prophet. He was certainly treated and rejected as the prophets had been. But here, his whole point is, even amongst my own people, even though I'm recognized as a prophet, my own people have rejected me. Those who from a human perspective should embrace me, those are the very ones who are neglectful of me, who are indifferent in their response toward me. You know that what Jesus says here, says here in verse 4 was a common saying of the day, sort of like a, 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 a known proverb. And we might say in our vernacular here that it was equivalent to saying familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus' truthful word in this verse is so simple, so to the point, as he's dissecting their heart problem. You know what your problem is, people? Sinful contempt. Here was Jesus, a present-day prophet who had grown before them for 30 years, now visiting them again. He had a reputation for being an astounding teacher, great truths, great power by means of his miracles. He had even come back to minister to them. And after all that, brethren, notice how they treat him with contempt, with indifference, because he was familiar to them. Their heart problem was sinful contempt, scorn, disdain. They devalued Jesus. He was not cherished by them. He was not treasured by them. He was not embraced by those who should have embraced Him, who, at least from a human perspective, knew Him very well. But really, they didn't know Him from the heart. What's the lesson for us? What's the lesson for us? It is this, brethren. Here is proof in this text that, a, that intellectual acquaintance with the facts about Jesus doesn't lead necessarily to intimacy with Christ. Amen? That's so true even in our Christian journey, however many years you've been walking with the Lord, that oftentimes our hearts grow, our hearts grow indifferent and cold to Christ and to His truth. It does begin with a right understanding. We shouldn't chuck out knowledge, right? That's where it begins. But then that knowledge and that truth concerning Jesus and His Word should impact our heart affections, the things that we love, the things that we hate. It should lead us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ rather than farther and farther away from Him. This is why you may be a long life church, a lifelong church attender. You might be a person who knows a lot about the Bible and theology, practice certain religious activities. You may be a person who has served even at a high level, and yet you do not have a personal relationship with Christ. You know a lot of things about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus personally. There's a difference, isn't there? I'm a huge Dodger fan. Boo. Right? 
I like the Seattle Mariners too, okay? I want you to know, but I'm kind of indifferent to them, right? <laughs> They're not really a factor. Anyway. So I'm a lifelong Dodger fan. I bleed Dodger blue. Okay, I'm going to be escorted after this, I know, because of those statements. <laughs> I'm a lifelong Dodger blue fan. And my favorite Dodger is Clayton Kershaw, who I think is a brother from everything that I know, from a people that I know who know the guy. And I'll tell you what, I can tell you guys right now, hey, guess what, people? I know Clayton Kershaw. And you say, what? Go jump off a cliff. You know, you don't know Clayton Kershaw. Right? Because what do I mean by that? I don't mean that I know Clayton Kershaw personally. I know facts about Clayton Kershaw. I know stats about Clayton Kershaw. I know some of the things that make Clayton Kershaw a great baseball player. But I can't text him right now and say, hey, I'm at Eastridge preaching God's word. I don't know Clayton Kershaw personally. There's a difference, isn't there? On the spiritual level, brethren, you may know about Jesus, a lot of facts about him, even have memorized a lot of verses and all of that, but you don't know Jesus personally in an intimate relationship with him because you have not yielded your heart and your life to Christ. You've never come to the point where you have heard the truth concerning Jesus by means of the public and private study of God's word, and you've never said, I acknowledge my sin before a holy and just God. God, forgive me that I have not lived out my purpose for which I, you put me in this world to love you and to give you glory and to enjoy you now and forevermore. I want to repent of my sins. I want to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never made that step. You've never appropriated the person and the work of Christ by faith to your life. You know a lot about the Bible, but you don't know Christ Himself. There is no personal relationship that you have with Him. Familiarity has bred contempt in your heart, you see. That's a reality. There's a danger in continuing to be exposed to the truth of Christ and His Word and not yield to Christ, not render your heart to Christ from the heart so that it leads you to worship and loving submission and grateful obedience, joyful obedience, loving obedience in your life, you see, if you're not in Christ. But then there's also a danger of, with familiarity breeding contempt in us who are believers, in us who are Christians, who are in Christ, how easy it is with the passing of time, brethren, to become indifferent to Him, to become complacent in our hearts, to even be filled with contempt toward our Lord because of the trials that He allows in our lives for His glory and for our good, according to James chapter 1. To be filled with bitterness and resentment toward the Lord. Instead of being passionate and fervent in our pursuit toward the Lord Jesus Christ, familiarity breeds contempt, you see. What are some ways, other ways, that familiarity may breed contempt in our hearts? Well, ask yourself, how is my walk with Christ presently? How is my private times of personal devotion when no one is looking, when it's only me and God, my Heavenly Father, what are those times like? Am I just clocking in and out of Bible reading and prayer? Am I just going through the motions in a heartfelt, heartless, machine-like, robotic kind of a way? Or are you engaged in those times in the Bible? Getting to know your Heavenly Father. Getting to know Christ, right? In prayer and in conversation with Him. Do you long to be with Him? Is it sweet for you to spend time with Him? Is it undistracted? Because you see, even in our personal times of devotion, where no one else is looking, familiarity can breed contempt, right? What about with regards to your response to the public proclamation of the Word of God? 
to when, from, either from the main pulpit or the other pulpits by gifted teachers in the context of the church. What's your response to the proclaimed word when it's taught and preached? Again, I'm so grateful for world-class preachers, and, and we can, at the press of a couple of buttons, I can access some of the best preachers, live ones and dead ones that have been faithful, finished the, the race well. I'm so thankful for that. Our problem, however, is not that we cannot access the best, most faithful preachers all over the world, including those that are closest to us, brethren. It's that we do not respond to the word that we listen to. We do not appropriate it to our lives. We are like those who James 1 describes, who are the self-deceived, who don't obediently follow through in a heart of worship um, in, in our response to the Word of God. We don't obey God's Word. We're not doers of the Word, but we're the self-deceived ones. Frankly, I think for many of us, rather than exposure to the truth leading us to greater love and greater humility and greater teachability, I think some of us have been driven to greater pride. We are proud individuals, right? We have become more, more critics rather than humble listeners. What's our attitude to the word preached? You know, I'm already familiar with that information, Pastor Kempis. Tell me something new that I haven't heard. You know, what's, what's, tell me something more profound. I think too many of us, brethren, maybe we, we wouldn't articulate it that way. Say, I've been around the block for a long time, you know. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Prior churches, Eastridge, right? There's nothing new that you can teach me. I think that's a proud statement. Whether you articulate it that way or you subtly, imperceptibly believe that in your heart. I don't need to be a part of a small group where there are other people in fellowship learning the Word of God together because I already know all that stuff, man. I already know that stuff. Familiarity has bred contempt in your heart. You're proud. And you need to repent of that pride of your hardened heart and your indifference toward the Word of God, proclaimed publicly and privately. Let me ask you, how's your, how, how's your, how are your relationships with other people? How are your relationships with other people? You ask, Pastor Kempis, what do my human relationships have anything to do with my relationship with God? Answer everything. Everything. Remember when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest, the two foremost, or what is the foremost commandment? What did he answer? Love toward God, wholehearted, supreme towards the Lord. And the second one is like it. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that? So, Jesus was saying it matters how you treat other people. Don't be claiming a robust, intimate, affectionate relationship with God on the vertical level. And then all of your, your relationships on the horizontal level are a wreck. Because there's something inconsistent about that. James, read the epistle of James. It teaches us about that. Don't be claiming wholehearted devotion, you dipsukos people, double-minded people, two-souled people, right? Who are basically are, say that you're devoted to God, but you are practicing partiality, you're hateful towards one another, you're slandering each other, you're gossiping about one another. That's James's point. He's, he's crashing down on the dipsukos, the two-souled person who is divided, who is lacking integrity, wholeness. So, your relationships matter. How you love God and how you relate to the Lord should have implications with the way that you relate to other people, right? As our relationship with Christ's brethren grows familiar, cold, and different, there's a downward spiraling effect out into all of our human relationships as well. And this downward spiraling effect may be subtle. 
and gradual, but it's there nevertheless. It's real, and we're all in danger of that. So our contempt toward Christ can show itself in our relationships, beginning with those, by the way, in the home. And so let me ask you, let me ask you, husbands, wives, how is your love life? You say, well, that's a personal question to be asking. I don't mean intimacy. I mean, how's your love life in terms of you husbands? Are you loving your wife? Are you practicing God's Word by loving your wife, laying down your life for her, sacrificing for her, right? Serving her. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 calls you to live with your wife in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, according to knowledge. That means that you and I need to be students of our wives, learning to ask good questions, to get to know them, to draw their hearts out, to send the message that we care about what they have to say. Living with them in an understanding way is one way of loving our wives. What about you wives? Are you loving your, your husband and your kids, young and older? Are you operating as a helpmate suitable, supporting your husband, being his greatest cheerleader? Well, he doesn't deserve it. None of us do. Amen? None of us do. We don't deserve the grace of God. I wasn't seeking God uh, 30 years ago. God found me. I was running the opposite direction. He loved me despite myself, despite my rebellion. I didn't deserve His love. None of us, don't, don't pull that card and say, well, they don't deserve it. None of us do. Despite Him, despite His weaknesses, despite His vulnerabilities and propensities, are you a helpmate suitable, loving your husband, coming alongside of him, supporting him? Parents, are you engaging your kids? Are you dis- raising them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord? Are you enjoying them? Cultivating a relationship with them. Not just telling them what to do, but living that out by example and also showing them that you love them. And that's why you want to engage them. And that's why you are coming alongside of them and instructing them and shaping their perspective, right? Because you care about them. And more importantly, what is best for them is that they would glorify God and that they would be pursuing the all-satisfying one, the only one who can satisfy the longing, deep longings of their soul, and that is God Almighty. Amen? See, familiarity can breed contempt if we are not following through with those commands of Scripture as far as home life relationships go. Familiarity has bred contempt when we are ignoring those things. Let me ask you, how's your relationship with people in the church? With your church family? How is that going for you right now? Right? Again, how does my relationship to the church, to other Christians, expose sinful contempt, Pastor Kempis, in this way? Christians love who and what Jesus loves. And more than anything else, Christ loves His church, doesn't He? Jesus died for her. He died for His bride. And one day everything will culminate in the marriage supper of the Lamb who will consummate His marriage to the church, to His redeemed people, to His bride. Jesus loves His church. He died for her. Do you love the church? Do you love your church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ? And are you fleshing that out? How? By being an active participant in the life of the church. Regular fellowship. Plugging in to a small group, right? We can come in on Sunday mornings and for 45 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes, you may hear a message, you worship, you do all of that, but so many of us are passive spectators because the rest of the week you're nowhere to be found. You're not involved in the church. It shows that you don't love the church like you profess to love the church. Are you involved in corporate worship? Midweek mutual encouragement and edification. 
opening up your homes and your lives to one another? Are you taking the opportunities when somebody invites you? Hey, let's go out for coffee. We want to have your family over. Do you take those opportunities? Are you an active servant in the church? God has given you spiritual gifts, a gift set for you to use in the, in the church for the glory of God and the good of your brethren. Are you utilizing your gifts? Are you committed to fostering a culture of being a service-oriented church where there are so many people chomping at the bits to serve each other that there are, they are outdoing each other? That's a way that we show that familiarity has not bred contempt in our hearts. And we follow through with loving the church, loving God's people. See, we have to give practical substance to this, right? And the point is, as your relationship with Christ grows cold and indifferent, even resentful, familiarity with Jesus can breed, cont- breed contempt in all of those areas. Home life, even in the way that we reach out to people in our community, in our neighborhood, in your workplace. Instead of following through with Jesus' a call for you to be a witness in those contexts, you just ignore the non-believer, right? And you forget about the fact that were it not for the grace of God and God using somebody in your life, you would not be here from a human perspective. Well, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I also believe that God uses means, right? God could save everyone himself. He's chosen to use prayer, have us use prayer, and us going out and being witnesses concerning the person and the work of Jesus. And at the end of the day, right, he's the one that transforms the heart. People are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. We don't save anybody. But we are called to be faithful proclaimers of the glories of Christ. Amen? We're called to do that, brethren. But familiarity may breed contempt in our hearts, and one of the manifestations might be a coldness and an indifference towards the lost. I want you to see that and take note of that. Put some meat to this, right? Well, as a result of the rejection of, G- of Christ, notice our fourth highlight. We've seen the great teaching, right? We've seen the great travesty and the rejection of Jesus, diminishing his glory and who he is. The great truth, which is their sinful contempt. Fourthly, we see the great takeaway. The great takeaway in verses 5 and 6. And this is one of the most tragic statements of judgment in all of the Bible. As a result of their sinful indifference or sinful contempt toward Jesus, look at verse 5. The text says that Jesus could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I like that latter statement, right? Except that he, he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What power he still had. But notice that. This is not saying Jesus could not do miracles in the sense that he lacked the power to do miracles. It's saying that Jesus would not do miracles there because of their response. Right? He did do some miracles for those who didn't share the attitude of the, of the majority. But I want you to notice this. What was the root cause of their sinful response? We see it in verse 6. Look at the text, verse 6. It says that Jesus wondered at their what, brethren? At their what? Unbelief. Unbelief. This is always the root issue, isn't it? People don't lack, don't don't, uh, reject Christ because of a lack of evidence or because of a lack of proof. They reject Jesus because they are unbelieving. It's the rebellion of unbelief. No matter how much proof you give to somebody, they simply will not believe. They refuse to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I like that there. He wondered at their unbelief. There are 
two, uh, only two places in the Gospels that speak of Jesus being in wonder or being amazed or of marveling. One of them is in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5-10, through 10, where it says that Jesus marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion, his faith, right? And the second one is here. Speaking of Jesus wondering or being amazed at their unbelief, he's amazed at the fact that no matter how much exposure they have had to him for 30 plus years, they are still unbelieving. They reject him, right? So what's the takeaway? These people here, brethren, market, had forfeited Christ's blessings because of their outright unbelief and rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he moved on. As far as we know in the Gospels, he doesn't return back to Nazareth again. What does this mean for us? You know, it could be the same for you even as a non-believer this morning. You've had so much exposure to the truth concerning Jesus. You've memorized much Scripture. You've been raised in a Christian home if you're younger and all of that. You've had so much exposure. See, it won't only be your wickedness and your sin against the holy and just God that will keep you out of heaven someday. It will be at the core. The fact that you rejected and spurned God's free offer of forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Because He's provided a sacrifice of the great sin-bearer Christ and wrath-absorber who took upon the punishment that we deserve, the arrow of God's wrath aimed in our direction. Christ took it. Christ took it. And so wait no longer. If you don't know Christ, listen, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to repent of your sins and to put your faith in Jesus. Don't allow familiarity to breed contempt in your own heart anymore as a non-believer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved today. What about for us as believers, as Christians, as those who are in Christ, right? I think it's a word of caution. This was a warning for me, even studying it in private. And I kept thinking about Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Listen to these words in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. To believers, by the way, professing Christians, take care, brethren, he says, lest there be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a warning. That's a real caution for us who profess Christ. That sin has a hardening effect upon our hearts, right? That familiarity can breed contempt in our hearts if we're not careful walking in close intimacy with the Lord Jesus. And I will tell you this, not allowing ourselves to coddle secret known sin when, where we think obviously no one else is watching, but God is always watching, right? If that is you this morning, listen, that, is, that will harden your heart and lead to familiarity breeding contempt more than anything else when you are coddling secret sin in your heart and life. That will lead to this kind of contempt here, right? Compromise in your life. So let us not be that way, brethren. Let us not allow, by the grace of God, familiarity to breed contempt. Amen? Let us be people who confess our sins, not only to the Lord, but to one another, as James chapter 5 would instruct us. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your precious truth. We thank you for the reality of a wonderful relationship that we have with you through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone, apart from works, apart from anything that we can bring to the table. Lord, none of us are perfect, and that is the standard 
And that is what Jesus did on behalf of us. So we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, as we continue to walk with you, not to allow by your grace and in the power of your spirit familiarity to breed contempt in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.